Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, a weekly podcast where we explore the many ways in which weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek, and this week we're going to try to answer the question, does weather sink the souffle? But before we get into the whole cooking thing, let's touch base on some other stuff. Hope your weather world's doing well. I'm preparing. (laughs) I'm preparing for that thing I don't like. Too much heat. Pleasant day today, actually, and it might be my last for a while. It looks like we're going to top out in some excruciating heat levels in terms of my book. As many of you know, I've, I've lived in places that aren't exactly uh, avoiding heat, which you'd think I'd do by now, maybe move to the Arctic Circle or the Antarctic Circle for that matter. But I'm a realist. Most people don't live in those spaces, and most things don't get done in those spaces. So, you know, sometimes we've got to tolerate the heat a little bit, but I'm expecting a bit of a heat wave over the weekend, and we'll see. Maybe next week I'll report about how miserable I am. No, I'll try not to, but many of you who are listening, I'm sure, are going to experience some of that same heat in different parts of the U.S. I see it kind of moving around, but wherever you are in the world... I hope your weather is pleasant, enjoyable, and as always, interesting, teaching us something new, something we can learn, some way maybe we can leverage weather, right? We're going we're gonna to be getting on that topic a bit today, is don't, you know, weather has its impacts and its influences, but you can learn how to work those to your advantage as well, right? And I saw a story this week about Well, it kind of gets off the weather tangent. Most of you know that my work touches in the boundary, traditionally, of my research when I was in grad school, that is. Still did some of that over time, but it's not as prominent of a feature in my work currently. Snow. Like snow. Still like snow. But snow touches the weather space, but it also touches hydrology, particularly in areas, you know, that have a big snowpack every year. And areas where water supply is based on that snow melt each season, whether it's water supply for consuming, whether it's water supply for farming, whatever it might be. Lots of areas around the world have that. Now, we also think about water as a very important resource just to life. But it was one of the first natural resources that we really leverage for power. Yes, we've had windmills for a long time, but using them in a power capacity wasn't their original design. It was more for, you know, using them in the production of grains and different things where it could, you know, rotate a wheel, but the speeds didn't have to be tremendous, let's say. Water has been something we've been tapping for a very long time. We built water wheels, right? that just would sit on a stream. And if you go by many streams around the globe, they've got these, you can find remnants. And I've got some close to where I grew up of an old uh, linen factory or you know something where they made some, some clothes. Not a huge thing, but the water wheel turned and it provided essentially, you know, power capacity. We also think, of course, of hydroelectric dams that have been put up some huge, massive structures. I think of Hoover Dam here in the U.S. as being one that I've been to, just this enormous thing. Others smaller. But the idea is they generate a certain amount of power. 
have no emissions, so it's a nice thing. And wherever you got water, you could essentially tap into that. Now, we've had mixed results with that. Part of the problem is with dams, they, you know, kind of alter the situation of a river system. Sometimes it's not as critical as in other things, but the more we learn about ecosystems, the more we we start to realize that free-flowing nature of streams can be pretty critical to how species interact in the areas that go from one end of the stream to the other, how the ecosystems have worked from one end to the other based on, you know, the ability to migrate, have access to that water, and that's both inside and outside, all right? So it could be fish species, but it could also be the way the animals migrate along the path of a stream. So we've constantly fought this battle of how can we do that, because it's still a very available resource. And I'm going to put an article in the show notes that talks about some new things that are being tried, and particularly a company that thinks that they have found a better way, right, to do hydroelectric power, which would be interesting to know. You know, I know solar is real big right now and solar has its pros and cons as well. Cause a lot of times the best places to get solar are not the most, um, hospitable to the devices we use to catch solar. I mean, the, the, you think about deserts and this throwing up a bunch of solar panels cause it's always pretty sunny, but the winds and sand going against the solar panels can be very abrasive and, you know, all sorts of trade-offs. All of this is trade-offs, but as we try to be better to this planet and looking at renewable resources that don't impact, that have, you know, low-impact situations, it's good to see that there's some innovation going on in the hydrospace. So take a look at that. I also saw an interesting story, I and mean, I'll put a link in the show notes about this, about a rare capture of Patagonia. This is the southern end of South America, so essentially Argentina and Chile that wintertime is often, often full of cloud cover, and you don't get much satellite coverage in those areas then. And I remember this from my days of doing a project that looked at, you know, I was talking about this topic right before about streamflow forecast, and that certainly is an area that's very dependent on snowmelt to look at the timing and the quantity of water that's going to be available in the streams annually. And one of the systems I worked on leveraged satellite data to make predictions in terms of what was coming. But that was a region, the further I got south in Chile, the harder it was to do. Middle part where the most of the population was is easier to do because after you got out of winter and the snow melt started, it cleared up. Now it got better in Patagonia as things went along, but trying to do during the season, it was so often as completely overcast and the satellite wasn't equipped to look through the clouds and get the data that I needed. So there's this great picture and you'll, you'll take a look at it. And I don't, I didn't look at what the situation was that caused this kind of uh, complete departure of clouds over the Southern part of the continent, but with some great um, imaging that was captured, which is again, pretty rare for that region. So if you're kind of into that thing, you can do that, catch that. All right. Let's get on to, let's get on to the main story, cooking. Now, for the most part, we're going to focus more particularly on baking, if you will, a subset of cooking, but, you know, using that old oven thing or not just, you know, throwing something on the stove, but you're going to say, well, okay, weather, where are you going with this? Well, 
you know, my first thing came about from some stuff I remembered when I was young. And over the past couple of weeks, oh, thankfully, I, I seem to have all the sound settings back to, to normal now. Thank you for your patience in dealing with that. But I was reminded of stories of my youth and cooking something that um, one of my grandmothers used to make and how it, you know, when she would come to visit, if the weather wasn't right, really something she couldn't make. And I never really understood it then. But as I've gotten, you know, more into cooking as I got older and baking as I gotten older, I, I start to understand these things, particularly once I got into meteorology and started to understand the nuances of how these things might influence what people are trying to bake in the oven. Now, the first thing I looked at was souffles. Because souffles are this notoriously finicky thing that rises up and, you know, there's all these urban legends about if you make too much noise or if you do all these things that the souffle will fall. And, you know, to someone who bakes that, that's like the, you know, it's just depressing. You spend all this time trying to make this thing that rises up. It's this wonderful kind of presentation food, if you will. And so I looked at whether weather had an influence particularly on that. And the answer was not particularly. There's all sorts of other things that you should be concerned about. But they also talk about how there's a lot of oversensitivity because, you know, sometimes the actual cause is things that are a little more obvious and, you know, we want to blame it on all sorts of mystical things. But it wasn't that far off. So souffles generally are more savory food. It's not really a sweet food. But there's kind of a cousin, if you will, to a souffle. Anybody who's baked knows that there's certain things you, you make that you want to rise. Bread being an example of that. And we'll come back to bread in a minute. But the one from my youth, actually, was meringues. Now, meringues and souffles both use egg whites. The whole idea with the, the egg white is you are trying to get, it can get very airy. And I'm not going to get into the science behind this. But as you, as you beat the egg whites, you kind of are disturbing the molecular structure. And it provides an opportunity to introduce air and get real fluffy. The difference between a meringue and a souffle with that part of the process, both you kind of want to create this airy thing. Meringues even go further. You're trying to create this very airy thing in advance, whereas the souffle more rises as it's cooked. Is with meringues, you introduce sugar. And... The process is to create these, what they call peaks. And anybody who's ever done it knows, or you, and most of us have seen it sometime. If you don't eat meringues, that's okay. I mean, you've probably seen them in the store. Sometimes they're sold as little cookies. What I grew up with as a child was more of a, a I don't know, I would call it, you know, six inches in diameter that you might add some jelly to on top or something like that. But it was still a, a, a kind of a summary treat or a, or a end of meal treat, if you will. guess it really didn't need to be summer. But the process of, of making it is a lot of mixing, and you really fluff this thing up. It's always amazing to me to watch how much some egg whites can, can fluff up. But the sugar that you add, sugar is just a moisture sink. So if it finds anything, if it's, you know, you throw some water in the mixture, well, you pretty much are going to ruin the chance of things getting firmed up in the oven, rising properly, and, and having this kind of crisp shell, which is what meringues have. It's a very delicate, light thing, but it's a hard outside. And even the inside's kind of an airy, 
texture to it. But anybody who's ever worked with meringues knows that you can end up with this kind of gooey thing. Still tastes fine, right? But it gets sticky to your hands if you're, you know, if you try to eat them as a cookie or whatever you're doing. And it's just, it's not this kind of airy, fluffy, light treat. And we get back to this thing with sugar. But a lot of people are worried about when they're cooking, you know, what ingredients they might add and how that might influence things. But it's to get it right with a meringue, it's probably just as important to try not to cook them on humid days. And this is one of those things I learned when I was a kid. My first introduction to weather and meringues and cooking was this lesson of humid days, which I grew up in the south of the U.S., which can be any time of the year, right? often make for horrible meringues, or if you're picky about your meringues, it can end up with a terrible result, right? And again, it all gets back to too much moisture in the air. Too much humidity causes this problem where things are never going to set properly, if you will. So instead of being light and fluffy and crumbly, it becomes dense and chewy. But in either case, still sweet and good, if you like sweet and good. But that's the idea. It, it just changes the texture. And for many, that's off-putting, if you will. I still like them either way. But... Meringue's just one example. This can happen in all sorts of things. And, and, you know, as always with weather, what's good for one thing is bad for another. On the flip side, let's say you're, you're making bread, just most breads. Yeast and flour, of course, have different sensitivities. Yeast loves heat. So if you want your breads to rise more, rise fast, quite often you make them in a warmer environment where, the, where you're letting the dough kind of do its thing, it's going to rise much more if it's warm. And also, if there's a certain amount of moisture. But that gets into the ability, if you think about it, to shift the style of bread depending on what the environment is. And yes, while you can adjust things, and and we live in a more closed environment quite often with with our cooking settings than maybe we did 50 or 100 years ago even. But if I had a day even this week, a few days ago, it wasn't particularly humid. I woke up this morning, temperature's the same in the room, but you can feel the difference, right? You can feel how the humidity that's coming in is going to be delivering this nice hot weather I'm expecting has increased as the same thing, you know, if you're in a situation where you're sweating and whether that sweat wicks away naturally and quickly, if you're in a drier air environment or not, and it does the same things to food. So generally speaking, bread makers want a warmer, moister environment. It makes for a better bread. But that might also depend on the bread you're making. And what you really need to do if you're into cooking is pay attention to that. And an easy way to do it, and I you know, recommend this for anybody, most, most thermometers that you buy for home, 
usually have an indoor-outdoor component to it. And if they don't, spend the money and get one. And don't just get an indoor-outdoor. Get one that has humidity for inside, for goodness sakes. Having that knowledge can help you adjust. And, you know, there's lots of stuff written about this from websites that sell flour to just about any cooking website. They'll tell you how to think about adjusting your cooking. If you're trying to cook in different situations, whether it's summer versus winter, whether it's moist versus dry. And I've had the same, making something like banana bread, just even in the same settings, if you've ever, if you've ever done banana bread, if you let your bananas go further along, the sugars become more dense and become almost liquidy versus a drier banana that maybe isn't quite as ripe. And that can have a drastic influence on how long something like banana bread takes to cook, but it also is going to depend on whether you like moister or drier bread, right? But with that knowledge of having both your temperature and your humidity inside, you can learn to adjust accordingly. And you don't need to worry about remembering whether it's 50% relative humidity versus, you know, 49%. It's, It's the big differences. It's knowing whether it's really humid inside or really dry inside. And, you know, maybe you don't need a sensor to do that. It just helps. It gives you that additional data point. And you can also match it up with the temperature because when we talk about humidity and meteorology, we're usually talking about relative humidity. But, you know, the simple truth is during the wintertime, the air just can't hold as much moisture, which is why many of us have humidifiers in our homes that introduce moisture in the wintertime. Because the inside air, we still keep it usually at kind of a target range, and that air can hold a whole lot more moisture than the cold air outside. So maybe if you're going to cook and you're wanting to make bread in the wintertime, you make sure that you have a humidifier close by and that you're doing it on a nice warm day or in an environment or a room that's warm. Maybe run the oven a little bit in advance before you start doing the prep. A lot of things you can do. A lot of things we can always do to adjust to our weather situation, to leverage it. Whether that's leveraging what you're making, if, if you're thinking about cooking standpoint, or adjusting the recipe accordingly. And a lot of times the good sites that have recipes will give you that sort of insight about how you can do that. And it doesn't just have to do with simple things like a bread. I mean, people who focus on making candies, same thing, we're back to that sugar and how sugar behaves differently in a moist environment. And the companies who make candy have to think about that, right? And I, I found that interesting in reading about this topic is they have to think about how much moisture to put into their mix. And this is why you might even experience some inconsistencies from time to time, even in brand names. Because they have to adjust for the environment around them. And yes, they're going to try to control it, but it may not always be that simple, particularly the more, I, I don't know, maybe the less mainstream, the more boutique a, a manufacturer is. There's going to have some variance because of the situation changing, right? And as, for example, as candy cools, because it always does, it's cooked and it cools, that sugar, if it's in a high moist environment, has a hard time, particularly if it's something that's supposed to get to a hard coating. And I had this problem when I was doing some toffee around the holidays last year. It didn't get to a hard set properly because it was too moist when I was trying to do it. And I didn't adjust accordingly. I didn't cook out a little bit more of that moisture, which is what I really should have done had I thought about it. 
so that when it cooled and it took a little more moisture in from the environment, I didn't run into a problem with it not setting as hard as I wanted to. So I ended up with a soft set. Again, tasted great. (laughs) But it wasn't the end result I was looking for. So fundamentally, you you, you want some takeaways from this. Sugar and water don't play well together. Yeast and cold don't play well together. But I also found it interesting that some of the articles even wrote about chefs and problems with changing weather conditions. And and they even went out of their way to say atmospheric pressure changes, you know, from a a weather system passing wherever you live. Generally aren't going to influence your cooking all that much, but they might influence you as a chef if your joints are sensitive. And we've talked about that before, right? If you have a sensitivity to the pressure changes, it may make you more irritable, which may make you more prone to errors in the cooking environment. Just something to keep in mind. It's not always just about the ingredients, the the constructor, if you will, can have challenges as well. So learn to adapt, learn to think about it, learn to ponder how weather is influencing what you're doing. Influences almost everything we do, right? To some degree, we may never think about it. But this is one where definitely you can consider what you're making, and particularly if you've ever made it multiple times and you recall some time it seemed off that weather might be the influence. And you might be able just to make a simple adjustment, put you right back where you wanted to be. Now, one of the things I saw that that was sort of a bit odd to me and I hadn't even really thought about was barbecue, right? Many people barbecued on grills and and there was talk about, you know, how precipitation, like whether it's snow or rain or whatever it is, it seems sort of obvious to me. It could change the temperature of the grill, even if you're cooking with, you know, clo- things are closed. Because essentially it's it, the heat that builds up. It's pulling that away as the precipitation comes and makes contact with the surface. But it also can have an influence in the cooking itself. And this is something I had experienced and I never even really thought about. And it can, it can be even when you're cooking in an oven, like if you're cooking something like a turkey. Right. But people who cook barbecue regularly deal with this and it's something they call the stall. And it's where the moisture in the meat begins to evaporate as as the meat gets dried out. But the temperature, and you, you may notice this, doesn't really change. And it can be frustrating if you're cooking something and something needs to get to a certain temperature and it's not getting there. Because as it dries out, we you experience whether you know whether you're sweating when you're exercising or you're cooking something, you still can have evaporative cooling. And so what's happening is as the moisture is evaporating, it actually is creating a counter cooling effect to the warming effect of the oven. So not only are you drying out whatever you're cooking, which can be good in some ways because it develop it can help develop a crust on something, but if you really don't want the meat to be dry, it's something to be avoided. And so that's why people tend to baste. But it is something to watch for because if you're not careful with that, dry out the meat and it can be extremely longer to cook whatever you're cooking because depending on how much moisture is in the item, if you're really trying to get it to an evaporative scenario or you're going to with your cooking, 
then that cooling is going to counteract. Uh, just something to keep in mind. I thought that was interesting. So keep it moist. Also, don't forget to watch the wing because the wing can cause all sorts of weird challenges as well as it whips through even whatever little air vents there are. So if you're in a heavily windy situation, might alter your barbecue plans. So it's not just people baking inside in a nice kitchen. It can be people cooking outside too. We all got to think about the weather. Sometimes the obvious things, yes, if it's raining or snowing, not necessarily fun to stand in that and cook at a barbecue, but just the situation of evaporative cooling or the way the wind whips through that barbecue grill can influence your cooking. I don't know. Stuff to keep in mind. As always, I found it interesting. I hope you did as well. Now, on that interesting note, I will also add that there's a real thing, and I didn't, I didn't cover it so much in this because atmospheric pressure, yes, it can change. And I talked about weather systems influencing people more than the cooking. But those who have ever cooked at higher elevations, like let's say here in the U.S., people that live in the Denver, Colorado region, it's a well-known thing that if you cook at different temperatures, things are influenced. And this is particularly true when you're boiling things. So one of the things the drop in atmospheric pressure does is it allows water to boil at a lower temperature. And you may think, oh, quicker to boil. Well, that's great, except those that know when you get water at a boiling temperature, it kind of holds that temperature. That's its, It caps at that. And if you're cooking something that requires you to do it in boiling water, it will take longer because that water is not as hot right? So campers who go up in the mountains have to deal with that and have to make sure that they're using something that can adjust to a lower cooking temperature, right? Because it may never get quite as hot as it would be down at sea level. I don't know. I found that sort of an interesting side note that's not directly necessarily related to weather per se, but it is related to the atmosphere around us. All right. Let's talk for a moment about the way you get the podcast. I just want to give you a heads up. I'll probably talk a little bit more about this last week. I've gone ahead and added the podcast to Spotify. Now, when the podcast went on hiatus a couple years ago, it Spotify was still tricky. They had just started accepting what I would call everybody's podcast. They had done a few select podcasts to, to start, and you kind of had to get on a waiting list. And I never got around to it. So in the final six months of the podcast, as most of you know, I had a few other things going on and just wasn't a priority. So I have submitted it. It seemed to work pretty well, but they're still in the, the process of processing is kind of the kind of weird message that I got. But I'll let you know how it goes. I sent a, a tweet out this morning to say it's up there. I want to see how it works. All these things are shifting. Google's kind of shifting things, going to YouTube music, all this stuff. Apple, they've tweaked some stuff recently. Everybody, you know, this all makes it in some ways challenging for us as creators, but some of them have tried to make it not too hard. It just, all these silos make it difficult for any of us to get a good feel for a consolidated, for instance, um, report on the number of listeners, if you will. There are ways we can do it, but every one of them creates their own challenges, pros and cons. But it is out there. If you use Spotify, feel free to catch it that way. Um, you should be able to do a search on it. But I'll rep like I said, I'll report maybe more next week once I know it's working okay. But I did want to give you a heads up. Whether you want to touch base with me about this or any other topic, whether it's today's show or just to say hi, whatever it might be, you can always reach me at what is it about the weather at gmail.com? You can find the podcast on Twitter. What is it about the weather? Just use the letters W I I A T W. Find it there. You can also find me, Mark underscore Jelinek. That's J E L I N E K, 
on Twitter as well. So those are some easy ways to get hold of me. I am on Instagram, a couple other places, but the the, the Twitter and email are, are probably the easiest ways to get hold of the podcast. But with that, I'm going to let you go. But as always, as always, I will remind you, whether it's about cooking or any of the other topics we discuss, it's important to remember that all we do, somehow, you can look, if you look just right, and find that weather connection. And a lot of times it's really interesting and insightful or entertaining. But no matter which, just remember, there's much more to weather than the weather itself.